Welcome to the Vine Life Podcast. We're a church in Manchester who love Jesus, each other, and our city. Catch up on this week's message and more. Hi. Um, oh, it's such a privilege to speak this morning. Um, uh, yeah, I'm Emily. I'm married to Joel. If you're in any doubt about whether I have children, please note the uh, iPad case. <laughs> Aggressively robust. And the... Uh, orange juice stain on the jumper as well from this morning. So I have two <laughs> children who are uh, out in their groups. Um, and yeah, it's I'm, I'm really privileged to be sharing this morning. And we are looking at the Israelites in the wilderness. Um, so let's have a look at where we are in the story. Um, so God has brought the Israelites uh, safely through the Red Sea in a miraculous display of his power, his might, um, Moses has praised God with a song, and uh, and at this point the Israelites are like, "Great, I'm happy to happy to follow Moses because this has gone really well for us at this point." Um, and they set out into the wilderness, and quite quickly the people begin to sort of grumble against Moses, and because they're, they're starting to panic um, about what's going to happen, uh, and it's kind of understandable because after three days of no water, they're like, "This is this doesn't look good." Um, what are we doing here? And they get to Marah, and the water's bitter, um, so they can't drink it. So they grumble to Moses, and Moses cries out to God, and God tells Moses to throw a log into the water, and it makes the water sweet, and they can drink it. Um, and then they come to Elim and camp by 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees, which sounds lovely. Um, and then they set out from Elim, and between Elim and Sinai is the wilderness of sin. And if you want a bit of an idea of Freight, uh, sort of time frame, they get to the wilderness of sin on the 15th day of the second month after leaving Egypt. And again, they grumble against Moses and Aaron saying, also, I just really like the use of the word grumble, <laughs> like they do, they're grumbling. Um, Would that we died by the hand of the Lord. Uh, yeah, some of these might come up on the screen as I read them, uh, so you can follow. Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. So quite quickly their immediate circumstances, their immediate um, lack and, and fear are more present and real to them than the um, protecting and saving power of God that they've just quite recently experienced in quite a dramatic and obvious way. Um, but their immediate uh, circumstances are pressing on them more heavily than their awareness of the uh, and, and security in the presence of God um, and, and threatening to overwhelm them. And I, and I do kind of get it because um, after years of slavery and oppression in Egypt, I feel like the Israelites must have been so depleted um, and at the Red Sea, they must have been like, this is great. This is it. Like, this is our God. This is his power. Everything's going to be okay. But the way that God shows up for them next in the wilderness is not what they expected. And it's not what they hoped for. And this is all um, unknown. And um, they're sort of looking back, thinking, well, at least we knew. Like, that was bad. But at least we knew what was happening there. Like, this is so unknown. We're so afraid. What are we doing here? And, and why do we have to, uh, you know, we've, been, we've seen the power of God at the Red Sea. We've been promised the promised land. Why are we now in this really hard period that 
that we don't know how we're going to get through it to what we've been promised. Um, but it, it feels like from God's perspective that he knows that what they need is time to recover, time to heal, um, time to begin to restore their relationship with him, time to recover their own identity. Like, who are they and who is he? Um, they don't need to be rushing on to the next thing and the next place and the next grand gesture just yet. They need some time to recover their identity, to begin to restore their relationship with him. And they need to learn to look to him for all they need in this place. Uh, when they were first brought out of Egypt, God said to them, if you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all of his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. And it, it sort of feels like uh, there's like a list of if you do this and this and this and this and this. But what it boils down to is if you listen to me and do what I say. So it's an invitation for them to trust him. It's an invitation for them to learn to be his covenant people, saved and protected by him. And I think, um, I think he's trying to put in place rhythms and structures and a, a framework that will make it possible for his people to begin to know him again. Um, that will make it possible for his presence to be accessible again in a post-Eden context, which is really what they're longing for. They think they're longing for this place, this glorious place that he's promised them. They're longing for his presence and intimacy with him. And he is trying to put frameworks and rhythms in place that will make his presence accessible to them again. And he's trying to build their trust in him and show them how to form habits and uh, rhythms of being in relationship with him. Um, how to fix their gaze on him and orient themselves around his presence, orient their lives around his presence. So I think it's so much about building that trust in him so that they aren't so quick to be thrown by things. Um, and so again, when they, when they become desperate for food, um, the Lord, then the Lord said to Moses, behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven to you and the people should go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So it's quite, um, it's quite simple instructions. It's sort of surprising instructions that he's going to rain bread from heaven, but it's quite simple for them to know what they're supposed to do. Um, and so in the evening, quail came up and covered the camp, and in the morning, dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. Um, and the people don't know what it is. And Moses explains, this is the bread from God that he said he was going to rain down, that he's rained down. Um, and he tells each household or each kind of group in a tent to gather the amount they need for their group. Um, and the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more, some less. But when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over. And whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. So everyone had exactly what they needed for that day. Um, and then Moses tells them not to save any or hold any back for the next day because that was just what they needed for that day and God's going to provide the next bit the next day. But obviously some people do hold it back because they 
are afraid that they're not going to have any the next day. And the next day, it's all like moldy and stinks and it's got worms in it. And Moses is annoyed with them. Um, and when the sixth day comes, they're reminded to gather twice as much. So each day they've been gathering just the amount they need for that day. And then on the sixth day, they're told, gather twice as much because you're going to be resting tomorrow. Um, and so whatever they don't eat that day, they're supposed to save for tomorrow. And when they do that, that time, the bread doesn't get moldy and grow worms because that bread was meant for that day, for the seventh day, so that they could rest and they didn't have to go out and gather more. Obviously, some people still went out to try and gather more on the seventh day and there wasn't anything there because God said there wouldn't be anything there that day. Um, and God said, how long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? Like seeing those people go out on the seventh day and still try and gather. Um, he said, how, how long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So he provides what they need for each day, and he also provides a rhythm of practical work and instruction and rest. And if they trust him, it should be quite simple. Like, that's the crux. Like, it's quite simple instructions if you trust the person who's giving the instructions. Um, so he gives food, sustenance, um, he gives work, and he gives rest. All of those things are being given from God because they're important for the people's survival. And I think he wants them to practice and get into the habit of following his instructions, his rhythm, and trusting him. And habits are habits because, they, because we've repeated them and done them again and again, and they've settled in us and they've become uh, second nature. They've become our stance, our posture, because that's something we've repeated again and again and practiced. And I think this is the beginning of that. Um, the Israelites are already trying to rush to the end, but God wants to build a relationship with them that is robust um, and not flimsy. And so he's trying to build this relationship with them, this, this trust. Um, and he's showing them, like, this is who I am, not just the big miracle worker with the, the parting of the Red Sea and the big grand gestures. I'm present to you in your everyday rhythms and your everyday needs. Um, now, this just might just be on my mind because I was recently lucky enough to go for a, away for a week snowboarding. But this thing about um, posture and stance and rhythm is so crucial to snowboarding. And it's probably true of lots of other things like surfing, horse riding, I don't know, but for me it's snowboarding. Um, and when I was first learning to snowboard, I would, there's like so many things to remember. There's, a, there's like, um, where are my knees supposed to be? Where are my hips supposed to be? Am I meant to lean this way or this way? Like, how do I turn that way? How do I, like, even which foot am I meant to, which foot's meant to be at the front? Where am I supposed to be looking? And you're trying to tick all of those things off in your head. And it's so hard because it's not, for me, it wasn't like anything I'd ever done before. It wasn't familiar to my body. It wasn't familiar to my mind. So I'm trying to remember all these things. And then the more, obviously, the more that you do it and the more that you practice it, the more it becomes just, it starts to feel natural and it starts to, um, yeah, feel much more familiar and you can do it without having to think through all those, all those things. Um, and the, the turning point for me was when I had a teacher who um, would just carve a path in front of me and I would just follow where he was going. And uh, as we'd come up 
to a turn because turning is the hardest bit. It's all right when you're just going along and then you've got to turn and, it, and you sort of all tense up. And he would go in front of me and turn. And then, so he'd sort of be behind me. And um, he'd he just, as I sort of tensed up to follow him around the, around the turn, he'd say, <laughs> and he was French, but I'm not gonna do the voice because that would be both embarrassing and offensive. <laughs> but, but he would say it in this tone, he'd go, Emily, you turn your head, you look at me, you follow me. And I would just like turn my head to where he was. And in turning my head, my whole body and posture would turn where I needed it to go and would turn the board. And I was, and, and still more than 10 years later, I hear when I come up to a turn or I'm getting a bit nervous, I hear that in my head. And I'm amazed by how much just turning your head to look the right way turns your whole stance and gets you around that bend. Um, and I think, uh, and with, like, with snowboarding, if you've got your stance and your posture right and you're in a rhythm and you're confident in what you're doing and you're relaxed, you can absorb a certain amount. So like, if you suddenly hit an icy bit and your board doesn't quite catch or it suddenly gets steeper or someone whips past you without any warning, um, you can kind of adjust and just absorb that because you're settled in your, in your rhythm and your stance and you're firm in that. And I think when we're moving in union with God, with our gaze fixed on him, there's a certain amount that we can absorb a little bit more easily. But I know what you're thinking. <laughs> there are some things in life that we can't just absorb when they come along. Um, no matter how well practiced we are, no matter where our gaze is, how solid our stance is, how firm our foundations, there are some things that when they come, they knock you off your feet and send you flying and it, it doesn't matter how how many years you've been <laughs> you've been practicing and how how solid you thought your you know how solid your posture was and it doesn't matter that you had your eyes in the right place uh and you know i'm thinking like a bereavement an illness a relationship breakdown whatever it is that you're thinking in your head those things can absolutely just smack you off your feet and uh if you, uh, if you want a visual of this, then just let me <laughs> give you a little picture of what happened on day two of our holiday. Um, Joel has been snowboarding for a long time. He was, uh, you know, very well practiced. He was doing everything right. He was in his stance. He was doing just, you know, very gentle, solid rhythms, looking where he's going. And just someone behind him just lost control and just without any warning, just smashed into him and sent him absolutely flying. And you know, and uh, he, he came out with it just with a black eye and he's fine, but, <laughs> um, but which was amazing. But, uh, you know, it's tempting to think in that scenario, well, what difference did it make? You know, it still hurt just as much. It still knocked me absolutely flying. What difference did it make? But I think if we've cultivated a, a posture, a rhythm and a gaze, a robust union with God, then we're quicker to look to him when that kind of thing happens and just say, what now? And that becomes more instinctual and that changes the whole equation um, because it means we're looking to him first rather than letting our immediate circumstances cloud his presence for us and start to overwhelm us. You know, with some things, some things that happen there isn't like a silver lining. Um, there isn't like a, oh, well, at least we can be grateful for that. 
you know, sometimes the only comfort is that we're not alone in it. And as time goes on and life happens and stuff happens, there are kind of fewer and fewer things that I'm absolutely convinced that I'm certain about in terms of pinning down how God works and how the world works. But like, but I'm, there's just so much mystery. There's so much mystery. And, but I am convinced that he doesn't leave us and he doesn't abandon us. Um, you know, uh, I love that line in um, one of the Elevation Worship songs that we've sung a few times. Not for a minute was I forsaken. I'm convinced of that. Um, Richard Raw, who's very, very happy with, okay with mystery, uh, he says, the only consistent pattern I can find is that all the books of the Bible seem to agree that somehow God is with us and we are not alone. I don't know why stuff happens the way it does. I don't know why some stuff happens and other stuff doesn't happen. I don't know why sometimes the thing that we feel like we have been promised or the thing that we're really hoping for just feels a really long way off and there's like a whole lot of really difficult wilderness to get to get through before we get there. But I believe that God doesn't leave us or abandon us. I believe that he goes with us. Um, John Ortberg, who's American author, speaker, former pastor, um, says, there is something you can't fix, can't heal, or can't escape. And all you can do is trust God. Finding ultimate refuge in God means you become so immersed in his presence, so convinced of his goodness, so devoted to his lordship, that you find even the cave is a perfectly safe place to be because he is there with you. You turn your head, you look at me, you follow me. And sometimes I think just turning our head, that, that simple thing that I'm talking about can take a huge effort. It can take a huge effort to just turn our head and look at him, but it changes our perspective on where we are. And I think this is what God was trying to cultivate in the Israelites in this time in the wilderness that they would become so aware of his presence and so convinced of his goodness, not just through big dramatic miracles where he saves them, brings them out, you know, through the Red Sea, but through daily shepherding. He didn't leave the Israelites after the parting of the Red Sea, like that's done, great, and then dash ahead to the promised land and be like, guys, you made it. Um, like he's the God that goes with them. And so much important stuff happens between those two points, between those two places. Um, the Israelites think that they are lost and wandering aimlessly and sort of wasting time and also on the verge of starvation. Um, but from God's perspective, they were never on the verge of starvation. He was providing what they needed each day. And this is crucial and foundational for their relationship with him, for their journey, for everything that's going to come afterwards. Um, this is going to shape their identity and their relationship with him for all future generations. So it needs to be firm and robust. They need to have trust in him. Um, and I think, I think when in those times when we have been knocked off our feet, um, 
I think that's when we need to instinctively turn to God. When things have disappointed us, not turned out as we expected, um, or when just something has just smashed us right off course. Um, John Eldridge says, we begin by loving God in our longing for life to be good again. So he talks about like that feeling of like, when is stuff going to be easier? When is stuff going to feel better? When is this going to hurt less? And he's like, that's where you start. You begin, we begin by loving God in our longing for life to be good again. We choose in that place in the wilderness to look to him as our rescuer, our healer, and our provider one day at a time. Um, and this fear, it feels like this whole bit to me feels like a foreshadowing of Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd and I lack nothing, which is obviously fulfilled in Jesus as the good shepherd. And the sheep look to the shepherd to provide what they need to survive, to keep going. Um, they look for reassurance that they're safe and protected. Um, and they look to the shepherd to know when to stay and when to go. And I think God is trying to teach them to trust him and follow him and show this part of his character and let this part of his character settle in them so that they're so convinced of his goodness. And later in Psalm 23, it says, even though I walk through the darkest valley or the valley of the shadow of death, your rod and your staff comfort me. And just like John Ortberg said, even in the cave, that's a perfectly safe place to be because he's there with us. And this time in the wilderness was always supposed to be a testimony about who God is. It was always supposed to stand as a testimony that people looked back to. In uh, verse 32, it says, Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Let an omer of it be kept throughout your generations so that they may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And Moses said to Aaron, take a jar and put an omer of manna in it and place it before the Lord to be kept throughout your generations. As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron placed it before the testimony to be kept. So this is a testimony to remind later generations that God provided, even as they grumbled and looked back and they were really unsure and they doubted, they were afraid they were going to starve. God continued to write his narrative and be true to his character. He consistently chooses faithfulness to his own promises. They ate that bread in the wilderness for 40 years. So for as long as they needed it, God provided it. And at the beginning, we looked at day one of them getting that bread. Um, but he did that every day. And every day they went out and gathered what they needed for that day. He didn't give it all in bulk at the start. Every day they had what they needed to see them through that day. And their plan is that the people of Israel will be so shaped by God's teaching and law and justice and presence and character that they will show all other nations and generations what God is like. The chosenness of Israel is for the blessing and salvation of all nations. And it's a testimony to us. We're living on the other side of the cross. So we have access to an intimacy and a union with God that the Israelites didn't have at this point through Jesus and his spirit. 
Um, and I just wonder whether we are fully taking hold of that, whether we're living in the fullness of the intimacy and union with God that is now possible through Jesus and his spirit. Are we cultivating this in our daily rhythms and habits in the way that we orient ourselves around his presence um, so that it becomes instinctive, becomes second nature to turn our gaze to him so that his presence speaks louder than our circumstances so that we go out and gather each day what we need for that day and trust him to provide again for tomorrow. So God is our shepherd through the wilderness. And I think if we're rolling our eyes a bit at the Israelites in part of you know some of these passages, let's practice trusting him, turning our eyes to him, trusting him to provide, protect, and lead us so that it becomes instinctive, becomes second nature to turn our gaze to him when we feel lost, afraid, can't see the other side, can't see the way through. You turn your head, you look at me, you follow me. Hope you enjoyed today's message. If you want to find out more, head to our website, findlife.co.uk, or follow us on Instagram. God bless, see you soon.